Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far. Read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Read to you by Pratham Data. Chapter 16. England under Edward I, called Longshanks. Part 3. It's late 13th century, and Edward I is on the throne of England. Tempestuous as he is, and as brutal as he is to the Jews in the country, he does, at the end of the day, do some good things. He brings the Parliament to a greater order, and institutes statutes in order to evolve the laws with the times. He was also terribly in love with his wife, Eleanor of Castile, and upon her death, created a series of Eleanor crosses to mark her funeral procession. On the other hand, he was also a very interesting character. He was a very angry man, and there have been stories of people fainting and pulling their hairs out in his presence. Yet, he was also a lover of Arthurian legends. And he would oftentimes visit the Abbey of Glastonbury to relive the days of Camelot, and even try and hold jousts and tournaments just like Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. But let's talk more about Scotland. The final chapter in Edward I's saga. And now we come to Scotland, which was the great and lasting trouble of the reign of King Edward I. About 13 years after King Edward's coronation, Alexander III, the King of Scotland, died of a fall from his horse. He had been married to Margaret, King Edward's sister. All the children being dead, the Scottish crown became the right of a young princess only eight years old, the daughter of Eric, King of Norway, who had married a daughter of the deceased sovereign. King Edward proposed that the maiden of Norway as this princess was called, should be engaged to be married to his eldest son. But, unfortunately, as she was coming over to England, she fell sick and, landing on one of the Orkney Islands, died there. A great commotion immediately began in Scotland, where as many as 13 noisy claimants to the vacant thrones started up and made a general confusion. King Edward, being much renowned for his sagacity and justice, it seems to have been agreed to refer the dispute to him. He accepted the trust and went with an army to the borderland where England and Scotland joined. There, he called upon the Scottish gentlemen to meet him at the castle of Norham on the English side of the River Tweed, and to that castle they came. But, before he would take any step in the business, 
He required those Scottish gentlemen, one and all, to do homage to him as their superior lord. And when they hesitated, he said, By holy Edward, whose crown I wear, I will have my rights, or I will die in maintaining them. The Scottish gentlemen, who had not expected this, were disconcerted and asked for three weeks to think about it. At the end of the three weeks, another meeting took place on a green plain on the Scottish side of the river. Of all the competitors for the Scottish throne, there were only two who had any real claim in right of their near kindred to the royal family. These were John Balliol and Robert Bruce. And the right was, I have no doubt, on the side of John Balliol. At this particular meeting, John Balliol was not present, but Robert Bruce was. And on Robert Bruce being formally asked whether he acknowledged the King of England for his superior lord, he answered plainly and distinctly, yes, he did. Next day, John Balliol appeared and said the same. This point settled. Some arrangements were made for inquiring into their titles. The inquiry occupied a pretty long time, more than a year. While it was going on, King Edward took the opportunity of making a journey through Scotland and calling upon the Scottish people of all degrees to acknowledge themselves as vassals or be imprisoned until they did. In the meanwhile, Commissioners were appointed to conduct the inquiry. A parliament was held at Berwick. About it, the two claimants were heard at full length and there was a vast amount of talking. At last, in the great hall of the castle of Berwick, the king gave judgment in favour of John Palliol, who consenting to receive his crown by the King of England's favour and permission, was crowned at Scone, in an old stone chair which had been used for ages in the Abbey there, at the coronations of Scottish kings. Then, King Edward caused the great seal of Scotland, used since the late King's death, to be broken in four pieces and placed in the English treasury now considered that he had Scotland, according to the common saying, under his thumb. Scotland had a strong will of its own yet, however. King Edward, determined that the Scottish king would not forget he was his vassal, summoned him repeatedly to come and defend himself and his judges before the English Parliament when appeals from the decisions of Scottish courts of justice were being heard. At length, John Balliol, who had no great heart of his own, had so much heart put into him by the brave spirit of the Scottish people who took this as a national insult that he refused to come any more. Thereupon, the king further required him to help him in his war abroad, 
which was then in progress, and to give up as security for his good behaviour in future, the three strong Scottish castles of Jedburg, Roxburgh, and Berwick. Nothing of this being done, on the contrary, the Scottish people concealing their king among their mountains in the highlands and showing a determination to resist. Edward marched to Berwick with an army of 30,000 foot and 4,000 horse, took the castle and slew its whole garrison, and the inhabitants of the town as well, men, women and children. Lord Warren, Earl of Surrey, then went on to the castle of Dunbar, before which a battle was fought and the whole Scottish army defeated with great slaughter. The victory being complete, the Earl of Surrey was left as guardian of Scotland. The principal officers in that kingdom were given to Englishmen. The more powerful Scottish nobles were obliged to come and live in England. The Scottish crown and sceptre were brought away, and even the old stone chair was carried off and placed in Westminster Abbey, where you may see it now. Balliol had the Tower of London lent him for a residence, with permission to range about within a circle of twenty miles. Three years afterwards, he was allowed to go to Normandy, where he had estates and where he passed the remaining six years of his life, far more happily, I dare say, than he had lived for a long while in angry Scotland. Now there was, in the west of Scotland, a gentleman of small fortune named William Wallace, the second son of a Scottish knight. He was a man of great size and great strength. He was very brave and daring. When he spoke to a body of his countrymen, he could rouse them in a wonderful manner by the power of his burning words. He loved Scotland dearly, and he hated England with his utmost might. The domineering conduct of the English, who now held the places of trust in Scotland, made them as intolerable to the proud Scottish people as they had been under similar circumstances to the Welsh. And no man in all Scotland regarded them with so much smothered rage as William Wallace. One day, an Englishman in office, little knowing what he was, affronted him. Wallace instantly struck him dead and taking refuge among the rocks and hills, and there joining with his countryman, Sir William Douglas, who was also in arms against King Edward, became the most resolute and undaunted champion of a people struggling for their independence that ever lived upon the earth. The English guardian of the kingdom fled before him, and, thus encouraged, the Scottish people revolted everywhere and fell upon the English without mercy. The Earl of Surrey, by the king's commands, raised all the power of the border counties. The two English armies poured into Scotland. Only one chief, in the face of those armies, stood by Wallace, who, with a force of 40,000 men, 
awaited the invaders at a place on the river Forth, within two miles of Stirling. Across the river, there was only one poor wooden bridge, called the Bridge of Kildeen, so narrow that but two men could cross it abreast. With his eyes upon the bridge, Wallace posted the greater part of his men among some rising grounds and waited calmly. When the English army came up on the opposite banks of the river, messengers were sent forward to offer terms. Wallace sent them back with a defiance, in the name of the freedom of Scotland. Some of the officers of the Earl of Surrey in command of the English, with their eyes also on the bridge, advised him to be discreet and not hasty. He, however, urged to immediate battle by some other officers, and particularly by Cressingham, King Edward's treasurer, and a rash man, gave the word of command to advance. One thousand English crossed the bridge to oppressed. The Scottish troops were as motionless as stone images. Two thousand English crossed. Three thousand. Four thousand. Five. Not a feather all this time had been seen to stir among the Scottish bonnets. Now they all fluttered. Forward, one party, to the foot of the bridge, cried Wallace, and let no more English cross. The rest, down with me on the five thousand who have come over and cut them all to pieces. It was done. In the sight of the whole remainder of the English army, who could give no help? Cressingham himself was killed, and the Scots made whips for their horses of his skin. King Edward was abroad at this time, and hearing the successes of the Scottish side which followed, and which enabled bold Wallace to win the whole country back again, and even to ravage the English borders. But, after a few winter months, the king returned, and took the field with more than his usual energy. One night, when a kick from his horse as they both lay on the crown together, broke two of his ribs and a cry arose that he was killed, he leaped into his saddle, regardless of the pain he suffered, and rode through the camp. Day then appearing, he gave the word, still of course in that bruised and aching state, forward, and led his army on to near Falkirk where the Scottish forces were seen drawn up on some stony ground behind a morris. Here he defeated Wallace and killed 15,000 of his men. With a shattered remainder, Wallace drew back to Stirling, but, being pursued, set fire to the town that it might give no help to the English and escaped. The inhabitants of Perth afterwards set fire to their houses for the same reason, and the king, unable to find provisions, was forced to withdraw his army. Another Robert Bruce, 
the grandson of him who had disputed the Scottish crown with Balliol was now in arms against the king, that elder Bruce being dead, but also John Comyn, Balliol's nephew. These two young men might agree on opposing Edward, but could agree on nothing else, as they were rivals for the throne of Scotland. Probably it was because they knew this, and knew what troubles must arise, even if they could hope to get the better of the great English king, that the principal Scottish people applied to the Pope for his interference. The Pope, on the principle of losing nothing for want of trying to get it, very coolly claimed that Scotland belonged to him. But this was a little too much, and the Parliament in a friendly manner told him so. In the springtime of the year 1303, the King sent Sir John Seagrave, whom he made the governor of Scotland with 20,000 men to reduce the rebels. Sir John was not as careful as he should have been, but encamped at Rosslyn near Edinburgh, with his army divided into three parts. The Scottish forces saw that their advantage, fell on each part separately, defeated each and killed all prisoners. Then came the king himself once more. As soon as a great army could be raised, he passed through the whole north of Scotland, laying waste whatsoever came in his way, and he took up his winter quarters in Dunfermline. The Scottish cause now looked so hopeless that Comyn and the other nobles made submission and received their pardons. Wallace alone stood out. He was invited to surrender, though on no distinct pledge that his life should be spared. But he still defied the ireful king and lived among the steep crags of the highland glens, where the eagles made their nests and where the mountain torrents rode and where the white snow was deep and the bitter winds blew round his unsheltered head as he lay through many a pitch-dark night, wrapped up in his plaid. Nothing could break his spirit, nothing could lower his courage, nothing could induce him to forget or to forgive his country's wrongs. Even when the castle of Stirling, which had long held out, was besieged by the king with every kind of military engine then in use, even when the lead upon cathedral roofs was taken down to help to make them, even when the king, though an old man, commanded in the siege as if he were a youth, being so resolved to conquer, even when the brave garrison, then found with amazement to be not two hundred people, including several ladies, were starved and beaten out, and were made to submit on their knees, and with every form of disgrace that could aggravate their sufferings, even then, when there was not a ray of hope in Scotland, William Wallace was as proud and firm as if he had beheld the powerful and relentless Edward lying dead at his feet. 
Who betrayed William Wallace in the end is not quite certain. That he was betrayed, probably by an attendant, is too true. He was taken to the castle of Dumbutton under Sir John Mentate and hence to London, where the great fame of his bravery and resolution attracted immense concourses of people to behold him. He was tried in Westminster Hall, with a crown of laurel on his head, I suppose because he was reported to have said that he ought to wear, or that he would wear, a crown there, and was found guilty as a robber, a murderer and a traitor. What they called a robber, he said to those who tried him, he was, because he had taken spoil from the king's men. What they called a murderer he was, because he had slain an insolent Englishman. What they called a traitor he was not, for he had never sworn allegiance to the king and ever scorned to do so. He was dragged to the tails of horses to wet Smithfield and there hanged on a high gallows, torn open before he was dead, beheaded and quartered. His head was set upon a pole on London Bridge, his right arm was sent to Newcastle, his left arm to Berwick, his legs to Perth and Aberdeen. But if King Edward had had his body cut into inches, he had sent every separate inch into a separate town. He could not have dispersed it half so far and wide as his fame. Wallace would be remembered in songs and stories, and there are songs and stories in the English tongue, and Scotland will hold him dear while her lakes and mountains last. Released from this dreadful enemy, the king made a fairer plan of government for Scotland, divided the offices of honour among Scottish gentlemen and English gentlemen, forgave past offences and thought in his old age, that his work was done. But he deceived himself. Coleman and Bruce conspired and made an appointment to meet at Dumfries in the church of the Minarets. There is a story that Coleman was false to Bruce and had informed against him to the king that Bruce was warned of his danger and the necessity of flight by receiving one night as he sat at supper from his old friend, the Earl of Gloucester, twelve pennies and a pair of spurs. That as he was rising angrily to keep his appointment through a snowstorm with his horse's shoes reversed that he might not be tracked, he met an evil-looking serving man a messenger of Comyn, whom he killed and concealed in whose dress he found letters that proved Comyn's treachery. However this might be, they were likely enough to quarrel in any case, being hot-headed rivals, and whatever they quarrelled about, they certainly did quarrel in the church where they met, and Bruce drew his dagger and stabbed Coleman, who fell upon the pavement. When Bruce came out, pale and disturbed, 
The friends who were waiting for him asked, What was the matter? I think I've killed Kermin, said he. You only think so, returned one of them. I will make sure. And going into the church and finding him alive, stabbed him again and again. Knowing that the king would never forgive this new deed of violence, the party then declared Bruce, king of Scotland, got him crowned at Scone without the chair and set up the rebellious standard once again. When the king heard of it, he kindled with fiercer anger than he had ever shown yet. He caused the Prince of Wales and 270 of the young nobility to be knighted. The trees in the temple gardens were cut down to make room for the tents, and they watched their armour all night. According to the old usage, some in the temple church, some in Westminster Abbey, and at the public feast, which then took place, he swore by heaven and by two swans covered with gold network, which his minstrels placed upon the table, that he would avenge the death of Coban and would punish the false Bruce. And, before all the company... He charged the prince, his son, in case he should die before accomplishing his vow, not to bury him until it was fulfilled. Next morning, the prince and the rest of the young knights rode away to the border country to join the English army. And the king, now weak and sick, followed in a horse litter. Bruce, after losing a battle and undergoing many dangers and much misery, fled to Ireland, where he lay concealed through the winter. That winter, Edward passed in Huntingtown and executing Bruce's relations and adherents, sparing neither youth nor age, and showing no touch of pity or sign of mercy. In the following spring, Bruce reappeared and gained some victories. These frays, both sides were grievously cruel. For instance, Bruce's two brothers, being taken captives, desperately wounded, were ordered by the king to instant execution. Bruce's friend, Sir John Douglas, taking his own castle of Douglas out of the hands of an English lord, roasted the dead bodies of the slaughtered garrison in a great fire made of every movable within it, which dreadful cookery his men called the Douglas larder. Bruce, still successful, however, drove the Earl of Pembroke and the Earl of Gloucester into the castle of Ayr and laid siege to it. The king, who had been laid up all the winter, but had directed the army from a sick bed, now advanced to Carlisle, and there, causing the litter in which he had travelled to be placed in the cathedral as an offering to heaven, mounted his horse once more, and for the last time. He was now 69 years old, and had reigned 35 years. 
He was so ill that in four days he could go no more than six miles. Still, even at that pace, he went on and resolutely kept his face towards the border. At length, he lay down in the village of Bergpon-Sands, and there, telling those around him to impress upon the prince that he was to remember his father's vow and was never to rest until he had thoroughly subdued Scotland. He yielded up his last breath. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.